Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Kevin Barton, Director at Robert Bray Associates, has been involved in some amazing SUDS projects, using landscaping to absorb water. In this podcast, we hear him address the audience at The Developer Live, Risk and Resilience. Just a couple of things following on from the last presentation. Uh, I think the best tree for biodiversity is probably a dead one that's lying on a forest canopy. Um, lots of microbes and, and uh, invertebrates in there. Um, and actually, interestingly, Prague, their, um, their mayor, who the citizens of Prague compared to a, um, an alcoholic Donald Trump, has actually committed to a million trees. Again, just a nice round number. They've committed to a million trees in Prague, which is pretty ambitious. Um, so I did have a nice gothic font for this being the graveyard slot. Um, but actually, it's kind of relevant to today's event, this whole kind of climate resilience thing. Um, it's kind of where we're going to end up unless we have radical change. Um, so there's the threat to us of climate change and, 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 and how we adapt to be resilient to that. Um, but also at the same time, we are a natural disaster ourselves. We are causing untold destruction to our natural environments every day. Um, this happens several times a year in London. This is just because of urban pollution running off our roads, hydrocarbons, heavy metals, heat off our urban surfaces, surfaces um, hit our depleted rivers in summer and kill thousands of fish. And with all those thousands of fish and millions of other microbes. Um, hundreds of times a year in London, our old Victorian sewers overflow a mixture of raw sewage and rainwater into our streams and rivers hundreds of times a year. Um, so these are some of the other problems that we sort of that we need to address as well. It's not just protection of us, but protection of our environment. Um, one that's not really talked about a lot is uh, in terms of pollution, urban pollution is actually tire dust. Um, which is basically it's a microplastic and it's a, what we call a primary microplastic. It's already a microplastic when it becomes a dust on our uh, on our roads. And this builds up along with all the other pollutants and gets washed into our streams and rivers. This was a study done in Norway who have a population of about one-tenth of our population. And they found that by far the biggest contribution to their marine microplastics um, was wear and tear from car tires. It was bigger than every other contribution that they could calculate put together, wear and tear from the car tires. Um, so this is just flowing freely through our streams and rivers, even through sewage treatment works, um, into our streams and rivers and seas. So clearly, for the climate's sake, for our sake, for the environment's sake, uh, we, need to, we need to stop what we're doing now. We need radical change. Some of this will be uncomfortable. We need to challenge everything we're doing um, in, a, in, our, in our daily lives uh, and how the country operates. Um, one aspect of that is, um, is around this sort of pollution and, and um, our, what we can do with the urban fabric. So we need to challenge the urban fabric to work a lot harder to solve some of these problems and protect us from climate change. And that's where we get really uh, excited. Uh, we're a firm of eight landscape architects who basically specialize in climate resilient landscapes. We think it's something every landscape architect should do. It should happen on every development. It should happen every time we touch the urban fabric. We should be challenging it to solve these problems and protect us from climate resilience. Um, 
And for us, it just makes uh, that extra challenge, uh, just creates far more dynamic, um, interesting functional uh, landscapes. And hopefully I'm gonna go through a few projects which hopefully sort of demonstrate some of the extra qualities and extra benefits that we can get into our schemes through adopting some of the techniques to solve these problems at the same time as benefiting the environment and benefiting ourselves into the future. And, and hopefully there's a few key points which will show that actually when it comes to some of these techniques like sustainable drainage um, that are helping to solve some of these climate uh, change issues, actually they are total no-brainers. Um, so we'll come on to that, hopefully we'll demonstrate that. Um, so firstly, wherever we touch the urban fabric, we need to challenge our designs. We need to challenge that urban fabric to behave differently to how it currently does to our conventional approach to, to development. So first, in new build, all new build uh, has to do a certain amount of flood mitigation, um, but 98 to 99% of projects are still falling way, way short of what we need to do to protect ourselves properly from flooding and to protect the environment from, from pollution. Um, on this project in, uh, in Hackney, working with um, Muff and Adam Khan Architects, we came in a little bit late on this project, but it wasn't too late. I spoke to the architects and said, are you doing are you intending to do green roofs? And they thought they might have one or two green roofs to sort of satisfy planners and sort of get a few biodiversity ticks. Um, and so I talked them through the opportunity of not just green roofs, but actually blue roofs. And if anyone's ever had a, a kind of blue roof salesman come round, um, they'll show you that it's got lots of plastic in it and a green roof on top. So you store water in plastic crates and you put a green roof on top. Um, that's not how to do it. That sells a lot of plastic and puts a lot of plastic into the environment. Um, what we do is actually do away with all the plastic drainage layers. We store water in the soil where you need it, where the plants want the water. Um, we put a flow control on the roof. We store water in the soil and occasionally, very occasionally over the top. Uh, it's actually very simple. It's cheap to construct in a green roof, in fact. Um, so I put this case to the architect on this project and he phoned me back about a week later and said, oh, Kevin, you know, we're going to do, do some green roofs. So I said, well, you let me know which ones and I'll color them in green on my, on my plan, or blue-green roofs. Um, and he said, all of them. And so when I picked myself up off the floor, I sort of said, well, what, you, what, why, what, what happened? Um, and they spoke to the cost consultants and the cost consultant costed the cost of putting the, the blue-green roofs on every roof. They compared that to what they had assumed they would do, which is the tanks underground, the kind of classic approach, 98 to 99% of the time and it saved the project 800,000 pounds. So it saved 800,000 pounds in capital costs. And not only that, but then it delivers all these other multiple benefits to climate resilience that we know green roofs offer. It's got biodiversity, urban heat island effect, air quality benefits. Um, it's complementary to um, building, heating and cooling. Um, uh, it could be used as amenity. We could be using these spaces as food growing for food security into the future. So at a saving of 800,000 pounds for a project, we get all these extra benefits and the planners are really happy. So the project gets a much smoother route through planning. Uh, that surely, if you present that to any developer, that's a complete no brainer. Um, as well, the, all the public realm in this landscape has um, extensive, it's almost 100% suds in one form or another. Um, and I think I'll show you through some other projects how that doesn't mean that it detracts from any of the functionality or quality of the spaces. In fact, it adds to the quality of spaces. Another project we've got going on in Hackney at the moment is uh, King's Crescent project, again working with Muff and Karen Kusevich Carson and um, Henley Brown architects. 
Henry Hale Brown, um, where we are using rain gardens that are also play spaces. So we're not separating people from water management. We're, multi we're creating multifunctional spaces that occasionally store water, because actually, contrary to popular belief, it doesn't rain most of the time in the UK. It rains occasionally, and when it does, often that's it's only small rainfall events. Um, so it's quite possible to mix uses, mix amenity uses with the storage of water. So we do this all the time, play spaces that occasionally store water and actually become more interested and animated when water flows through them. Um, stepping up a level, uh, similar to some of Dirk's projects, um, we've got a sunken Mooger area in the center of the scheme, in the, in the main square, where we can store the extreme rainfall events, but only the extreme rainfall events. Not every time it rains does this sunken Mooger have water in it. The rest of the time, the water's being stored in rain gardens and permeable paving, and only in extreme events, I very rarely, when nobody wants to be playing basketball, does this thing fill up with water. But also critically, the water has gone through various measures like the rain gardens and permeable pavings to remove pollution, to remove silt loading, so that actually what ends up in this space, what ends up in the amenity space is clean water. So that water comes, fills up in that Mooga, large volumes of water to, to prevent flooding, but it's clean water, so when it drains away again, we've got, we've got no residue of pollution or, or silts in that space. It can be used again very quickly. Again, where we touch the fabric, where we're doing projects anyway, we need to be trying to build in this sort of these, these, these mitigation techniques. Um, so here on White Hart Lane, uh, we were working on a, a highway improvement scheme looking to narrow the carriageway, slow speeds, create more permeability for pedestrians um, crossing the road on this sort of busy high street. Um, so that narrowing of the carriageway presented an opportunity to not only liberate uh, this poor tree, who really only survives because his roots are in the highly polluted Moselle River, which is culverted underneath the road, um, but also create some quality public realm that also manages water and, and prevents flooding and pollution. So here on the left of the image is um, a, a bioretention rain garden. So this is a very special rain garden that takes water straight off the highway um, and has these filtration layers which, uh, which clean the water, um, store the water, allow it to, to, to be held there for a period of time and then slowly drain away, in this case to the Moselle River. Um, so what we're delivering to the Moselle River underneath here, which incidentally we couldn't daylight because it is so polluted, it, you can smell it from 20 meters away. Um, what's delivered to the Moselle River is, is a slow flow of clean water, um, contrary to the whole rest of the catchment for the river. There's a close-up of one of the rain gardens. Um, so you can see the gaps in the curb on the left-hand side just allow the water to drop straight off the carriageway. So we're not dropping into gullies, which actually create more pollution. They actually take the pollution off the road and make it worse. Um, we take that pollution straight into the rain garden where the uh, microbes uh, digest the hydrocarbons, the heavy metals are filtered out, the tire dust, the microplastics, they're filtered out. Um, and critically, that water's cooled down and it's oxygenated so that when it gets to the river, it actually can support life in the river. Also critically, what's great about these sort of features where we're putting green infrastructure between the highway and, and uh, pedestrians is we can put the planting in there to help with air quality. Um, so all the time we're looking for this multifunctionality from, from, our, from our green infrastructure. And then just around the corner on the same project, we've got an adopted permeable highway. So this whole highway can infiltrate water. Um, and in fact, this wasn't the highway being built, this had already been built, and then they decided to build the new Tottenham Hotspur station uh, off 
my permeable highway. Um, and there it is completed. So they've built the station with all its cranes and still there's no deflection in that permeable paving, which is amazing. And so it's, it, this is a big, big problem is trying to get people to adopt permeable highways. So the more projects like this, we can prove that it works. Not only that, but you can just see the guy in the yellow trousers, just, just in foreground from him is a sort of a raised curb. Um, basically, we were waiting for the station to be built to then um, create a, uh, a, a planter where that, where that extra high curb is. And there's one on the other side of the road and plant trees in there. Now the space of the planter isn't very big and uh, as you know, Green Blue Urban uh, sort of demonstrate, uh, we, you know, we need, we're looking for sort of about 20, 30 cube of soil for the, for the tree to grow in. So in this case, across the highway, underneath the highway, we've got a structural tree pit, which is, it takes what we call the Stockholm approach. So it's, um, it's stone with uncompacted soil in there. Um, and those trees will be planted and they will grow underneath the whole highway uh, with the road on top. Um, still with a sort of structural loading. And critically, when it rains on that, that permeable highway, the water, the first place it starts going to is the trees. So in drought conditions in summer, any small rainfall event, those trees will get a, a larger volume of water than they would do if they were just in open ground. So it allows actually, there's this sort of climate resilience around our use of potable water to irrigate our landscapes. So here we're looking at how we can provide this such functionality, but also the benefit to the trees at the same time. So the first place we try and, try and take water is to vegetation and to trees. Um, again, urban regeneration, this busy road where uh, there's a school on the left-hand side, there's some playgrounds on the right-hand side in White City. And uh, it was a polluted, dangerous route to school with lots of people driving a very short distance to get to school. It was almost like a vicious cycle. It was so difficult and polluted to cross the road and get your kids to school. It forced, you know, it kind of encouraged people to drive, to drive there, um, which meant actually all social interaction was really kind of angsty and angry and beeping at each other. Um, the community wanted to change. Uh, Hammersmith and Fulham were looking for a project which demonstrated SUDS. So we had kind of had two clients, community needs on one hand and trying to demonstrate SUDS on another. And we created this landscape, which actually has won sort of top Landscape Institute awards for its um, contribution to the community and the benefits it's brought to the community, but at the same time has won engineering awards uh, for its such functionality. And in fact, this landscape was heavily monitored. And in the first year, 58% of the rain that landed on the landscape and the contributing roofs that we also took into the space, 58% of the rain never even left the site. So that's huge volume losses. And then what did leave had been stored in these features that you can see these, greens, these green spaces, rain gardens and basins. The water that did leave was stored in there, cleaned, cooled, oxygenated, and then released very, very slowly to the combined sewer to stop those combined sewer overflow vents where all the water rushes, all the sewage rushes into the rivers. Um, we're doing things like uh, in the kind of in the foreground on the left-hand side, an overhead channel taking from that school roof and dropping down in this sort of sculptural way into a rain garden. We always like uh, sort of animated things to happen when it rains. So we've got these um, a helix of steel ropes which sort of spread um, films of water when it rains uh, between the between the wire ropes. And in fact, when I was there uh, last year for an open house event, which we do we've done every year for the last few years. Um, a child, actually, a local child actually brought his mother, it was raining, um, which is great for demonstrating such projects, but not great for hanging out a weekend in White City. Um, a uh, young boy, must have been about nine or ten, brought his mum to look at that sculpture when it was raining. And it wasn't raining enough, so the film, this sort of dancing film of water kind of thing, wasn't happening yet. And that kid said to his mum, oh, can we come back later if it's raining harder? 
So he'd understood the, that the difference in different intensities of rainfall events. He wanted to actually come out into a into a into a park when it rains, which is uh, kind of unheard of generally. Um, and and so we're connecting people with with the with this sort of natural water cycle and these activities, and they're starting to learn that these landscapes can do these different functions. You can just see the wiggly wall um, running through the sort of main basin in the background there. Um, this little kid walking on that on her way to school. Um, so instead of this sort of dangerous polluted route to school, we wanted to create a fun, adventurous route to school. And um, there was actually was the only notable feature in this landscape uh, before we did this development was a very straight, low wall, which two generations of people had walked on to get to school. So I was speaking to mums who remembered walking on this low, straight wall. And that was the one thing really clearly in our brief that we had to keep that wall because it was the only treasured feature in that landscape um, until I met the community and said, well, it's a lovely wall, but it's very straight um, and it's a bit boring. Uh, how about we kind of take the wall, but we do something different. So we put this wiggly wall through one of the suds features to give the kids uh, an adventurous, playful route to school. And sometimes when it rains, it'll be even more adventurous because there'll be shallow water on each side. Um, and, uh, and we did, uh, it's a great hit. And people ride bikes along it, scooters along it. I've seen people riding air wheels along it. Um, and almost the kids can't resist following, kids can't resist following lines and raised walls. They can't resist it. So this is almost the, the, the kind of route for probably 90% of the kids on the way to school in the morning. Um, and arguably, we, we try to loop it into the school entrance to try and encourage the kids to go to school. But I think sometimes they kind of carry on and want to do the whole thing. Um, and Again, in terms of climate resilience, apart from doing all this wonderful stuff about protecting us from flooding and pollution, um, this was it after what was actually quite a drought summer. So this was it in October. And that planting, those, those grasses are about six foot high. I stood in there and it was up to my head height. Um, and that's with no irrigation. And again, we're taking water from an enlarged catchment, an artificially large catchment. So even, even a small summer rainfall event will deliver water from all these impermeable surfaces into that landscape. So those trees and those grasses can thrive without any irrigation. And is that going to play? <laughs> um, and actually, just on the other side, uh, to, the sort of, to the right behind the trees, is actually a playground. So some of that screaming is from the playground, but I would say there was actually an equal amount of sort of screaming and play going on just in this landscape. And it's a playful landscape. It's not formal play, but it's also very collaborative. There are kids hiding in there. They're moving around as groups. You can't see them half the time. You can just see the grass moving, but it's just teeming with kids. Um, and it's lovely when the wind blows or the grasses move. So it's a very aesthetic landscape. Um, yeah, it's obviously I'm quite quite excited about that one. <laughs> um, so it just it shows that that kind of multifunctionality. You know, this is a highly functioning space for the local community. Um, it provides space to host events. Um, they hold markets there. They hold fairs there. Um, so children play in there every day. Um, it's a it's a it's a nice, safe, clean route to school every day for those children. Um, so as well as every time we touch, blimey, every time we touch the fabric uh, of development because we're doing a project anyway, like regeneration on new build. We also need, and we do this all the time, particularly going around London, there are so many green spaces and hard spaces which are 
dull and boring and don't really function for how we, the demands we have on green spaces today. There's so many dull spaces. All they are is just flat grass, low maintenance, and some trees. So we need to challenge these spaces to how can they protect us from climate change and how can they protect the environment from our destructive tendencies. Um, so we need to ask our parks. Here's a park next to a busy high road in uh, Wood Green. And uh, you see those sort of circles and semicircles at the sort of bottom of the image there. We're looking at how we can retrofit suds into a park to not only solve the problems of flooding and pollution, but also at the same, so taking the water off the road there straight into a rain garden, but also actually then use it as an opportunity to create an, en an enhancement to those spaces. Um, we're cleaning that water. That water is a precious resource, so we can have, again, a low irrigation or zero irrigation landscape that brings color, biodiversity, and dynamism to what was a really, really tired urban park. Uh, again, you know, this really bizarre, bizarre landscape in, in front of a leisure center with these two peculiarly small circles. This wasn't one of our projects. This, this was before, before we did anything here. Um, with a, well, I don't know what that tree is there, but it's obviously, you know, it's just meant to be in a, a, a little bonsai pot or something. Um, so, you know, a pretty uninspiring, but really large area of paving that's, that's contributing to flooding every time it rains. Um, you know, what can we do there? How can we enhance that space? And if we're, if we're looking at depaving and, and doing something to enhance the entrance to that leisure center, let's look at these other functions that it can deliver as well. So we turn them into rain gardens. So we take water off that surface and off, off those roofs and create just slightly sunken features. We're keeping the water at the surface. So these don't need to be deep, um, intrusive features that we need engineering to make uh, sort of make it work. People can walk freely through that if they want. It fills up to about 300 mil of water, so it's not dangerous. Um, and by using this sort of kind of lush landscape and planting, we're using nature to lose a lot of that water. Again, you know, kind of around 50, more than 50% of the water on that last scheme just got lost into the landscape and taken up by those trees and, and, and plants. And yeah, this is I'm really, last couple of slides, I'm not bad. Um, I just wanted to throw this in, actually these photos from this morning, because um, there are going to be some tough chat choices as well. So I think I've shown that um, these, these sort of approaches to these sort of multifunctionality design of managing water within our, you know, our urban landscapes is a real no-brainer. It saves money, it brings all these other benefits, um, and it can be, it just takes careful integration of design. But there are going to be some tough choices. And personally, I look at lots of these historic parks, and I think these could be working a lot better. Actually, the historic parks, all these grassland, um, it's actually quite compacted and water runs off very freely off these sort of grass parklands. So actually our, our historic parks actually contribute to our flooding issue. Just because they're green doesn't mean to say they're neutral, they actually contribute to flooding issues. Um, yet we have these sort of water features which actually have a free board. You could store quite a few uh, cubic meters of water in there. Um, and also, we're, you know, quite often these water features are, 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 are what we call dead water. They're, they're sort of chlorinated and they're recycled using you know, non-renewable energies. We need to look at how we can harvest rainwater, use natural living systems like, um, like the sort of natural swimming pool techniques, and use photovoltaics for pumping rather than these sort of, uh, these sort of traditional cosmetic approaches to water features. And, and I was speaking to this fella earlier on as well about something like the serpentine. Wow, look at, look, at the, look at the potential for that to store large volumes of water. I think, you know, it's not that I don't have regard for heritage, but if we're all dead, it's just archeology span for when the sort of, uh, when 
Elon Musk's progeny come back from Mars um, and, and try and recolonize Earth, uh, they're going to look at oh, these lovely historic parks. Why didn't they do a bit more with those um, to make them more relevant to today's challenges? Um, literally, last two slides. So <laughs> with uh, a bit of hard work, determination, um, some might say panache, we can work our way to a situation where we use nature, hey, <laughs> um, to our benefit um, without the sort of destruction. Um, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> uh, so, thank you. thank you. Thank you for sticking around as well. I know it's tempting to rush off. Uh, please ask me a question. I like questions. There's a microphone here. Are there any other questions? I might take you in a cluster. Now we're going to stick with the one. Okay. Um, you talked a bit about adoption. Mm. I'm quite interested in hearing how you get local authorities to buy into this idea and adopt as well and maintain those um, rain gardens in particular. Yeah. And how hard are they to maintain? Are they? Uh, they're not. They're not hard to maintain. But typically, I mean. Um, you know, we so it, we will always design our, our 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 system and our planting to whatever adoption is appropriate for that site, whatever we can agree. Um, so something like that basin there in the background, um, that's uh, stream once a year. Um, so it's actually relatively low maintenance. Add add some mulch, ideally once a year. Um, uh, where it's appropriate, actually, we've got rain gardens each side of the school entrance there, where the school agreed to provide their own. So maintenance to keep that and the kind of beautiful feature side of the entrance, you know. So then we've got more flowering perennial plants and things like that. Um, actually, really interestingly, on that scheme, uh, the an amazing opportunity happened when the defects period ended, where the, the contractor is responsible for looking after the, the the landscape, and the council was then meant to take over, but it it, it just in the it just didn't get through in the paperwork, and so the council maintenance team didn't realise they had a site this new site to maintain. So there's a period of about four months around sort of May onwards, worst time of year to have like no maintenance. So I got there sort of around sort of uh, early summertime, and there were six feet tall weeds. So I phoned the client back at the council and I said, well, look, this is an opportunity because just around the corner is a community garden association, so a charity that works with um, disabled and disenfranchised children, um, doing amazing, amazing work with this little farm they've got. Um, so they're part of this community. And, and I said to the council, look, approach them and ask them for a price to maintain this, because they're part of the community. And the more we can get the community involved in like, looking after this space, the better. So they did, and they were cheaper than the council, so they got the job. They're 10 times better and more skilled than the council. They are local, um, and so they're on the doorstep. Um, and, and personally, I think the, the, the current model is broken. I think it's got to a point. You know, what we're constantly being asked, effectively, people want zero maintenance landscapes. It's like, well, yeah, but you get no quality. Um, and I think we need to accept the fact that either that needs to change or it's broken and we need to look for other models. And this is actually an amazing model. So we're actually rolling out some more suds on the White City Estate. And the intention is we will ask them, because they're making money out of it, which supports their other charitable projects. Um, and we get a better, we get a better sort of end result. Fantastic. So you know we're looking to roll that out some more within that estate, and I would like to see that sort of thing. Unless, you know, maybe with the climate change, climate emergency that we've got, maybe 
some more funding will arrive to deliver some of these things and maintain them into the future. Um, but unless that happens, I think we need to be looking for the models. But can they I can ask, be very low maintenance. Can I ask you what blockers, if any, you're facing? Blockers. Um, that you would like to make go away. I guess at the moment, a lot of this, a lot of this work um, is is coming out of uh, the sort of flooding and highway departments in councils. And what it isn't properly embedded in yet is, well, actually, just it needs to run through the whole construction industry. It needs to run through the whole of planning. There's so many multi multi benefits from these things that actually every every department in the sort of planning authorities should be interested in it and should be pushing for it. Um, so arguably, you know, the funding is low because quite often um, the, the, cl the client in the council is mainly sort of focused on um, the sort of flooding, flood mitigation. They're, they're just not experienced in delivering quality design in public realm. And so they don't fully understand the value and how much that costs to deliver quality public realm. Um, so the best projects are those where actually we've got kind of multiple um, sort of figureheads in the council pushing for it. Um, so it would be that working across that pan yeah, industry. Yeah, and I think the biggest barrier, not for us, but for the, for the, for the country as a whole, is just this uh, resistance to change. Resistance to change um, in every sector, whether that's designers, engineers, um, uh, planners, some of them, not all of them, some, some pioneers. Um, um, the developers themselves, you know, it, 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 every every aspect, people want to do what they've always done. They're comfortable with that. It's quick and easy. It's predictable. Um, and so even though you can present developers with evidence that it will save them money, because the government, because someone is asking them to do something that's good, there's almost it's almost like there's a natural resistance to it. And so you get things like, uh, well, you can have the suds, but you can't have your affordable housing. You know, take your pick. And things like that. It's just crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully the the sense of emergency might make this happen more. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. This podcast has been brought to you by the developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.